This is The Guardian. Today, a prison break in northern Syria is a bloody reminder of how Islamic State is trying to rebuild and how Western government policies are helping them do it. Before we start, a heads up. This episode contains descriptions of violence. It's a freezing night in late January in the northern Syrian city of Hasaka. Two huge trucks heave towards the beige walls of a prison, holding thousands of former fighters from the militant group Islamic State. The trucks come to a sudden stop at the prison gate in a wall, and they explode. Into the breach run ISIS militants who start firing on the Kurdish soldiers on guard inside. The imprisoned ISIS fighters join the attack as well. They were ready. They knew it was coming. Some of the prisoners, a few wearing orange jumpsuits, use the chaos to make a break for it into the surrounding town. Kurdish reinforcements arrive, and so do American Apache attack helicopters. The jailbreak becomes an all-out battle inside the prison and the neighbourhoods around it. It's become a siege. The ISIS fighters trapped inside the prison they broke into. One of the places they take shelter is a dormitory inside the complex, where they find, caught in the crossfire, hundreds of boys, teenagers. I'm uh, 2003, I'm, eight, I'm 17 years old. I need help, we're getting hit from every side from the Kurds, we're getting hit by planes. It's very hard here, I'm very scared. We just uh, are selling a lot of bodies of kids, eight, and eight years, 10 years, 12 years. A young Australian, whose family back in Sydney haven't been able to hear from him in years, gets his hands on a phone and manages to send a few terrified messages. My friends got killed here, I'm very scared, I'm by myself. There's a lot of people dead, a lot of people injured, people are screaming next to me, people are scared. I really need help, I really want to come back home, please help me. He says he's been injured, but there's nowhere to go. As the killing rages around him, he takes cover. I'm right now inside a building, I can't get out because I'm scared if the planes hit me. There's a lot of dead and there's a lot of injured now, especially outside on the on the streets and that you can see from the windows here. There's a lot of bodies, dead bodies and that. And still very scary, I don't know what to do. ISIS has fallen out of the news in the past three years. Last week's attack showed the group still has the capacity to shock and exposed unfinished business. Western governments would prefer the world forgot. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the hundreds of foreigners who fought for ISIS and their children still in Syrian prisons, and why leaving them there could be playing into the terror group's hands. Martin Chulov, you're The Guardian's Middle East correspondent, and you were covering the story of this ISIS prison siege. How did it eventually come to an end? The Kurdish forces that had surrounded the prison had initially feared that large numbers of Islamic State fighters and prisoners had been freed and were roaming around in in neighbouring villages and and also suburbs. 
Those fears were later dispelled. It looks as though the numbers that managed to escape were closer to 20 to 30 men. Luckily for them, this wasn't uh, a large number. This was uh, in the low dozens. It could have been in the, in the high hundreds. And if that were to be the case, we'd be looking at a very different scenario now. But as, as that reality became clear, the Kurdish forces were able to focus their energies on securing the prison completely and clearing it wing by wing. And at that point, uh, discussions with the inmates led to a surrender and the siege ended a lot more peacefully than it had began six days earlier. Islamic State fell from a lot of our radars in 2019. That was the year the group was militarily crushed in their last stand in the Syrian city of Baghouz. It was functionally the end of their so-called caliphate. So what happened next? Baghouz was their final redoubt. They'd been chased into Baghouz as the parts of land that they controlled slipped gradually from their fingers. This is what the end of the so-called caliphate looks like. Broken ISIS families and militants giving themselves up. There were tens of thousands, if not more, uh, Islamic State fighters and, and suspected collaborators and members of the community that had been swept up and they had been put into prison, such as this prison in Hasaka. And, and at that point, it became very clear to the Kurdish political leaders in the region, that they had a significant problem. You not only had these camps, which are holding upwards of sixty to 80,000 uh, women and children and elderly men, but you had large numbers of fighting age men who, who needed to be detained as well. And prisons were constructed. Uh, there was often not a lot of effort that went into perimeter security. And uh, I don't say that with any deal of blame either. There was a, a huge burden that was suddenly dumped upon the Kurdish forces of northeastern Syria. And till this day, they are struggling to handle their capacity. Okay, so these prisons become filled with former ISIS fighters. But last week, it was highlighted that they were also filled with children, or at least teenagers, including this 17-year-old boy. How did he come to be there? Well, the 17-year-old boy, from what we know of his story, is he arrived with his mother and father from Australia into Syria around 2015. So these were the peak months and years of the ISIS insurgency at that point. Uh, he was a young child. He had no agency over his decisions whatsoever. And he was swept along in the, the initial years of euphoria and victory that the Islamic State enjoyed. And then those grinding years of loss and defeat. What's happening at the moment is the women are being separated from the men with their children. The men will be taken away for questioning and then possibly taken onto detention centres. The families, meanwhile, will be taken to refugee camps in northeast Syria. So at some point, clearly, this 17-year-old becomes separated from his parents. He would have been about 14 when that happened. How did he end up on his own? Well, this Australian boy had been separated from his parents shortly after the fall of Baghouz. He'd initially been moved into one of the camps uh, in eastern Syria. And it was policy for there to be no uh, children above the age of 14 in these camps. So he was then moved into what was then a detention centre, with the loose aim of turning it into a rehabilitation centre. His father was moved into the prison, the same prison where the siege took place. Uh, they didn't spend much time together. They were in separate uh, wings, uh, one, one in, the, in the youth wing and the father in the main prison system. 
But during this time, we are told his father passed away in the prison. He wasn't able to speak to anybody in Australia. His, his family members back home had, had, had not heard his voice until he released some voice notes uh, on Sunday in which he was clearly terrified. I'm Australian, uh, I'm 17 years old. I just got shot by a patch in my head's bleeding. I have injury in my head in my hand. There's no doctors here that can help me. Uh, um, I, I need help, please. I'm very scared. There's a lot of people dead in front of me. I'm scared I might die any time because of bleeding. Please help me. And speaking of Apache helicopters uh, attacking nearby, he said he had a head injury from an explosion and he was looking for urgent help to get him out of there. Martin, you've actually spent time in these jails for ISIS prisoners in northern Syria. Tell me about this one. Well, this particular prison is a makeshift prison. Uh, It had been reinforced from the outside. It looks very old school. It looks like a very much a 30s or 40s Shawshank Redemption sort of facility. Beyond these gates, behind the walls, in cells left and right, are thousands of ISIS prisoners. They are from all over the world, captured here in Syria when the caliphate they created fell. It's tough time, it's a difficult time, and there are, there are many men to a room. They're, they're all dressed in orange overalls, uh, a familiar look to the, the last 15 to 20 years of, of, of detention operations in Iraq and Syria. Uh, there are quite often eight to 10 people to a room, and there are also bigger rooms within the facility in which 30 to 40 men are housed at once. They, they sleep very close to each other. They have blankets, they have food. Uh, it's very, very frugal. There is uh, significant violence there from time to time. But by and large, these are places that you simply don't want to be in. So the Kurds run these camps for women and, and young children, and they sound like pretty terrible places, but not as bad as the prisons for the men, where a lot of these teenage boys have found themselves. What are the conditions like inside for these teenagers? So initially they were put into the prison system, but quite quickly moved into separate wards, which were deemed to be rehabilitation centres And in many ways they are, uh, but we should use that term loosely. They are not subjected to the the daily rigours of the male prisoners um, and they they do have uh, more scope to learn. They do have access to psychological support, to games, uh, a bit more playing space. But let's not kid ourselves. They, They are not free to leave. These were children who were caught up, swept up in the menace of the Islamic State, not through their own choice, and they have been kept there without access to meaningful education or to their governments or to their families for the last three years at the very least. The kid that's uh, eight or nine years old is still alive. He's uh, Indonesian. But the 15-year-old kid is uh, is uh, Iraqi and he's uh, dead. And uh, the, there's another kid is uh, 13 or 12 years old. He was Uzbeki too. And uh, there was a third kid, he was uh, 14 years old, he was Turkestani. Most of these teenagers were obviously much younger when they were actually brought to Syria. Do we think that they they were fighters or were they at home with their siblings, with their mothers, while their fathers were out there, you know, fighting for Islamic State? The allegations that the Kurdish forces make are that many of these boys were from the so-called Cubs of the Caliphate, which was an organisation that ISIS did set up 
in which they recruited child soldiers and used them as suicide bombers or cannon fodder, frontline fighters that were going to die. So these children were heavily indoctrinated. Uh, they were drawn deeply into a, a cult-like environment. They had no uh, agency whatsoever over their choices, and they were used and abused in one of the most disturbing eras of the whole Islamic State experiment. Now, were some of these boys in this prison from that death cult that was uh, set up uh, for them to die in? Yes, probably they were. But has there been any meaningful effort to, to rehabilitate them, to de-radicalise them? You know, people have tried, but this is a significant uh, undertaking and there isn't a great deal of, uh, of, of evidence to suggest that it, uh, these efforts have been successful. And this 17-year-old, this young Australian, do we know what category he fits into? Was he a cub of the caliphate or was he just an ordinary kid? The Kurdish leaders in northeastern Syria say he was a member of the so-called cubs of the caliphate, but we can't confirm that. And uh, I think we should be cautious about that claim. It, it would be easy to make about nearly every one of those children within that uh, dormitory. Martin, from the perspective of, of the Kurds, I mean, they can't be pleased having to detain and, and house tens of thousands of people, including women and children. Three years later, they're still in Kurdish custody, including the foreigners. How is that? How have the foreigners not been forced to go back to their homes? Well, let's start with the foreigners. There have been some efforts, tentative and, and fleeting efforts, to repatriate women and children uh, back to their home countries. The French have done so, so have the Danes, so have the Dutch. Uh, the Australians have too, uh, which makes it slightly unusual that they could have left behind a, a then 15-year-old boy. This was done in late 2019 when the Australian government went to Camp Roj and they took upwards of uh, 17 to 18 mothers and children back to Australia. Uh, they left this young lad behind. And it, it does seem to be quite an arbitrary decision about who gets to go home and who gets to stay. Now, the thinking within the Australian security establishment is that 14 to 15-year-old boys who have been mixed up with, with men of fighting age, who have seen such atrocities, who were potentially involved through no choice of their own, but had been involved, are a more difficult proposition to deal with uh, back home in Australia. Uh, or, or elsewhere than, say, uh, a 15-year-old girl or a mother. And the the policymakers, the politicians, haven't yet got to a point where they're prepared to put any capital on the line and get some of these boys back home. Would you let these ISIS fighters who want to come back to Britain, would you let them back in the country? If we... Well, I'm not saying necessarily we'll let them... I'd in. let them rot, so I'm interested in what you think. Well, what, how would that help matters, OK? Letting them not come back in the country... Because would, then would, they go off and yeah. they hit Westerners, they strike at Westerners in other parts of the world. Mm. That is not completing the mission, mm. OK? It's so important... It sounds like the Kurds, who worked with Western forces to defeat ISIS and did most of the fighting and dying, have been left holding the bag here. Donald Trump infamously threatened to release some of these prisoners into Europe if their European homes didn't take them. We're holding thousands of ISIS fighters right now, and Europe has to take them. And if Europe doesn't take them, I'll have no choice but to release them into the countries from which they came, which is Germany and France and other places. Because we found... But even that didn't force them into taking their people back. What are the Kurds saying about the lack of action by Western governments on their prisoners? Well, they do resent that. 
And they do resent the fact that there is not much movement politically on doing something about these camps. Now, the Iraqis have taken some of their prisoners back. There have been dribs and drabs of, of, of foreigners go back to their home countries. But the structural problem remains. These camps and these prisons are, are potent reminders of how dangerous the situation continues to be. Now, the Kurds rightly demand that, that solutions are delivered and the, the solutions need to be led by the international community. They are saying that we have played a very significant role, but there will come a point where this is not sustainable anymore. Earlier on in 2019, there was another prison break, this time from a, a town nearby called Ain Issa, when guards simply walked away, fearing that the Turkish forces who were invading that part of northeastern Syria at the time were going to come for that camp. So upwards of 800 ISIS members walked on out and they they did fully escape. And if this is going to roll on for years to come with uh, 10,000 or so Kurdish forces due to act as a vanguard against ISIS for the rest of the world, there could well come a tipping point. And this is something that the international community must continue to realise. Martin, Islamic State was pretty comprehensively defeated in 2019. Inside the prisons, have people accepted that and tried to move on? Or is there some effort to keep the the dream or I guess the nightmare alive? It was an interesting repositioning after the defeat of the Islamic State on the battlefield where they could no longer claim with any credibility to control any geography. Now, this was at odds with what the, the messaging was earlier on, that they were here to stay, that that they were, had been able to overpower. So w- when it came to pass that they'd, they'd lost all of their land, they uh, they simply changed that message, and uh, and that was that this is this is a challenge which has been preordained by God, and that we will be back, and that we will do things differently, and that no victory is achieved easily. So they have been able to return to the camps and the prisons and resume the messaging that Muslims around the world are being persecuted, and continue to be so by the West, and that this. Defeat is a lull and that challenges such as this were always going to happen and that they will regroup and that they will, they will pose a, a, a fresh challenge in the face of a new wave. And in the case of the, this prison break, according to the Kurds, ISIS had hundreds of fighters captured or killed in the operation and only a few prisoners managed to escape. In that way, how much value was this whole prison break operation to the group? Well, prison breaks is something that ISIS has always prided itself on. Uh, it's it, This is not by no means the first. Uh, there have been many prison breaks in Iraq. There was one in Abu Ghraib. There was one in Taji prison in 2014. Whenever it can, it tries to free its members from prisons and, and return them to the ranks of its insurgency. ISIS are able to say to its members now, we're coming for you. We haven't left you. And it was... It was something that had been espoused quite regularly by the ISIS leadership. And in fact, one of the very last voice messages recorded and distributed by the ISIS leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was for his members to tear down the walls of, of prisons and to, and to free those who were inside. This was something he repeated quite consistently. So it's something which has continued to resonate in the three years since. And just days after the Turkish invasion began, that has come to pass. Hundreds of ISIS fighters and their families have escaped. As the SDF shifts some of the men and women away from guarding the camps and toward the front lines. 
Coming up, why leaving British, Australian and other foreign citizens behind in Syrian prisons could see history repeat itself. Martin, it seems like so far we've approached the defeat of ISIS through just one lens, which is the military one. And we've kicked the can down the road on the deeper problem of what to do with with the fighters, with the women and with the children. And right now that problem's mostly out of our view, except when things like this prison break happen. But it sounds like you think that's a miscalculation. Why? If we go back to the start of the Islamic State era, and in particular the forerunners to the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, Al-Qaeda itself, um, they played a very significant role in the early years of the insurgency in Iraq, which followed the war to oust Saddam Hussein. Uh, the Americans had set up uh, several very large prisons in Iraq. There was Camp Cropper, which is near Baghdad Airport. There was Camp Bukha, which is right down the south in near Basra. Now, Camp Bukha was described at the time and in the years since as almost an academy of jihad by those who had had been caught up in in this insurgency there were many many of its practitioners were 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 all pulled together including Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi the eventual leader of ISIS and and 27 of the men who formed the initial uh, ranks of his senior leadership back in 2014 and 15 I was spending a lot of time with a member of ISIS who had been in such a prison, and at that point he'd, he'd left the organisation then, but he described in great detail about how every single one of the leaders that was all very important to him before he went to prison was, was sitting there, and he could talk with them about what they would do when they got out. Guardian reporter Martin Chulov interviewed a senior ISIS commander he calls Abu Ahmed, not his real name. Abu Ahmed says he spent time at Camp Bukha with Baghdadi, starting in 2004. He told Chulov Baghdadi was a fixer at the camp who could settle disputes between competing factions. And he described how they used to write each other's phone numbers on the elastic of their boxer shorts. And so when they got out of prison, all they did is cut their boxes apart and they reconnected by by calling each other. So the, the history of detention in Iraq has been a particularly toxic one. It it is suspected that these facilities did more harm than good in terms of providing the environment for uh, jihadist leaders to organise for what would later become the Islamic State. And what do you think history will say about this prison experiment happening right now in northern Syria? These prisons are a ticking time bomb. What we saw in Bukha back in 2004 to 2008, we are seeing replicated in Syria in 2021-2022, where... All day, all week, all year, people are able to sit around and gather and plot. And as they do so, uh, their, their members on the outside are also plotting about how to, how to spring them from the prison, how to break them out, and how to get this insurgency back up and running. You only have to drive around Syria's towns and villages in the east, as I did late last year, and you can, you can feel the menace on the streets there. And Hidden amongst their communities are these are these centres where these hotspots where ISIS are sitting and plotting all day long. Uh, this won't be the last prison break we see. It certainly won't be the last attempt. And Martin, what about this young Australian, the seventeen-year-old? What happened to him? We understand that the seventeen-year-old boy did have a minor injury um, after some of the fighting on Sunday. We do believe that he is safe, his life isn't threatened, 
We understand that the Australian government is aware of who he was and, and where he is now. And it could well be that for the first time, his family back in Australia are able to, to speak to him. His mother is alive in Camp Rodge. His father died in prison. His siblings were killed uh, during the Islamic State years. And that maybe uh, we will start to see the, uh, an end to the practice of, of jailing children indefinitely because they're too difficult to deal with politically. And the worry with this kid is that he's 17. What happens when he turns 18, when he becomes an adult? When he is 18, he will be moved to the adult prison just next door where his father was and died. And that is a whole different series of calculations for him then. And also for the, the Australian government who found him too difficult to deal with as a, as a teenager. But once he gets into the adult system, what are they going to think then? Is he, is he just another man who's, who's drifted away to a battlefield and, and, and been forgotten? It's pretty frightening to think that this, this teenager might end up in the kinds of facilities you're talking about where men are sitting around plotting a resurgence, plotting some kind of new iteration of Islamic State. And he would do that having no male mentor figures, having nobody else to protect him, needing support, needing protection. He would be very susceptible, you would think, or you would fear uh, being in such an environment where along come these grizzled members of the Islamic State saying, we will support you. What would be the price to pay for that? And how long could he hold out against any of the inevitable attempts at indoctrination that would be coming his way? And do you think this prison break will change any of what we've talked about? I think that if this prison break had been more serious than it ended up being, then there would have been political considerations uh, at quite high levels, at leadership levels in in the West. At this point, I think... uh, the Kurds will be using it as leverage for more resources. Uh, they may aim to ask the Americans to stay longer than they are in Syria. They may be looking for more military support. But I'm not sure this is going to turn into the necessary tide of change amongst Western governments in which they're prepared to take their own people back home as a starting point. And so this fades into the background and this time bomb you're talking about just keeps ticking? Until the next prison break. That was Martin Chulov, The Guardian's Middle East correspondent. Thanks very much to him. You can read his coverage of the prison break and fears of the resurgence of Islamic State at theguardian.com. Some of the clips we used today of the young Australian came to us via Human Rights Watch. Before we go, I want to mention a brand new podcast from The Guardian called Weekend. It launches this Saturday and it'll showcase the best Guardian interviews, features and opinion columns from the week, read by some great narrators. Listen from this Saturday on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mythley Rao. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.